Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, and this week I am joined once again by the wonderful Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam? Doing great, Jerry. I was really excited in the last episode to hear mention of Biff Man. <laughs> Biff Man Returns. <laughs> Biff Man Returns, the sequel. Yeah, that made me happy. That was our Secure Act 2.0 episode that I recorded with uh, the Biff Man himself, Mike Long. <laughs> Man 2.0. Oh, yeah. But we got some uh, cool topics to talk about uh, today. Topic that I feel is really important because it's something you're probably going to do with just about every one of your clients. And it's also a topic that gets heavily tested on on the CFP exam. And I will say it probably gives a lot of frustration to a lot of our students. I've uh, I've talked to a few of our students off a cliff over this topic because they kind of throw their hands up in the air and they just say, well, that's not really fair, but I guess it is what it is. And what I'm talking about, of course, Adam, is order of operations, order of importance for, you know, when you do a financial plan, what do you do first as far as in ranking your client's needs on an importance level? Oh, yeah. This is this is one that throws students into fits. There are always some spirited debates about it. <laughs> and the truth is, there are there's a lot of valid points that always come up right and that that's what makes it more difficult and honestly that's what leads a lot of students to say there are subjective questions on the cfp exam which i would debate with them that's not necessarily the case is just the angle you're looking at the situation from matters and really taking into account the the person you're planning for like this is personal financial planning the person needs to come first. And, uh, you know, we're, I feel like we're, there's, there's so many rules of thumb out there in a lot of the articles you read and uh, just for the public consumption that it, it's not as simple in practice sometimes to just say, this is the way to do it. You know, life insurance, 10 times salary, boom, you're done. Yeah. You can get way more nuanced. It needs to be a client by client decision, um, depending on their needs and their liquidity needs and their dependence, right? So these things get way more complicated the deeper you look into them. And I thought what we would do is we went back into the Biff review uh, queue, yeah. right? So uh, you've been you've been searching in there for some good questions that have come up often, and. Uh, Definitely let us know if you like the format, listeners, because we have a whole list of these. And Jerry and I have talked about how valuable they can be as as episodes for the Bit Fights podcast. Yeah, basically doing a, a new little segment here, uh, digging deep into the mailbag from uh, CFP cycles from ages ago and taking some actual real student questions from past exam cycles and you know that we think are really beneficial and helpful and just mm -hmm. kind of doing an episode on them so yeah like adam said if you like this format definitely let us know yeah well why don't we get to it yeah uh, yeah you want to leave jerry set the set the stage here so yeah so digging into the queue here uh we have a question it's really representative of uh questions that you'll see on the actual cfp exam i know i got a question like this on my exam we have quite a few of them in our uh, practice queue banks, but 
Um, the general outline of these questions is you get some information about a client. So for example, this question is talking about Shira, who's a single parent, age 38. She has two kids who are 12 and seven. So fairly young, but not babies. Um, she recently received a large inheritance of 150,000. And then it also lets us know that she has an emergency fund that'll cover one month of expenses, which is a good start, but definitely not meeting uh, you know, the emergency fund rules of thumb that we talked about. Uh, she also has a $50,000 group term policy, and she also has an unfunded revocable living trust. And the question asks, based on all of this information, as Shira's CFP, what do you recommend that she should do first in order to help shore up her financial position? What is the most important thing for her to do as her next steps. So what, what would you say, uh, Adam, when you see a question like this, uh, how, how do you kind of grab the bull by the horns with this? Well, I, I always start by, by looking at what she has, right? So I, all right, emergency fund to cover a month of expenses. She has a very small group term policy, an un, unfunded revocable living trust, right? And uh, take a look at her situation. So what does she have? What's her situation? Single parent, I mean, if I had the highlight tool, I would highlight that single parent piece. Mm -hmm. Two children, right? She receives this inheritance, okay? And uh, she wants to open a 529 account for the child, right? And what will often be the option is to just follow the client instructions. I mean, that's even in the code and standards for CFP certification. Just go ahead and follow client instructions if they are legal and if they are reasonable. It's it's part of that fiduciary duty element that's that's so big in, in CFP world. But I would I would start honestly by looking at where are the vulnerabilities. I like to lay out a, a mini scenario SWOT analysis. Right, what do they have going right? Uh, where are some opportunities for some planning work? Uh, what are the threats? And when I work through a, a planning process with with a personal planning client one of the first things i do is to look for uh protection like the protection of assets the protection of people the protection for legacy all of that stuff is very early on in in the process and what i see in a case like this is yeah they they do not have a sufficient emergency fund yes let's acknowledge that yep they yep. do not have sufficient life insurance Let's also acknowledge that the unfunded revocable living trust. Well, that's a matter unto itself, but right, right off the bat, based on what they have, I see two pretty big red flags, right? Right. Um, now, then I take a look at the options that are on the table. So you build, you use that fund that to build the fund up to six months of, of expenses in the emergency fund. Um, that is the most tempting place for, for students <laughs> and practitioners alike to go to. Yeah. Cause because, that's, that's drilled into our head. You know, yes. emergency fund is number one. <laughs> Nothing is more important than emergency fund before you do anything, do your emergency fund. Yes. You know, I can't, if I had a nickel, every time someone told me that I could retire by, I'd have an emergency fund <laughs> if I had a nickel <laughs> and, uh, our student who sent this question into us was very, very frustrated with this uh -huh. question 
because that's what they selected and they got the question wrong. You know, yeah. the emergency fund is not the correct choice. No, it's not. Uh, and and one of the other options is evaluating the life insurance options to provide more protection. Protection, very important. Remember, like we are at the where do we patch up the financial situation to keep out any of those threats to completely blow up the, this family financially and potentially lead down paths of, of bankruptcy, right? I mean, that's right. that's how serious this is with where this, this single parent is right now. Um, so we have, you know, fund that 529, more life insurance, fully fund emergency fund. Every single one of those options is important However, the correct answer here is not an action. And I think this is one of the things that throws people off occasionally on the CFP exam. We are so hardwired to, to kind of spring into action, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. It's one that of our biases, actually. You know, action totally bias. is. <laughs> we are the helpers, right? We're going we're gonna to spring into action. We're going to take care of business. That sometimes discussing something is the right option before recommending, right? Before opening an account. Um, so I look to those, those cues as well, right? Because more often than not, springing into action in, in a case where there are so many things probably isn't the, the wisest path. Uh, I think it, it's important to say, all right, well, rather than writing up the recommendation. I mean, just think about your financial planning process. You're not getting into recommend, recommending and presenting till way deeper in that process. Right. So, yeah, uh, and I just want to highlight it because I, I don't, I don't think we've kind of addressed it head on. I just want to make it absolutely clear for our listeners. It's the difference in wording between recommends building the emergency fund, which is an action you are recommending and then versus evaluate life insurance. And it's easy to gloss over those and not really think about it, but that wording difference is very important between those two actions. You know, recommending is you are decided what you are doing. You're going gung ho yeah. versus evaluating is you're still mm -hmm. at the very beginning of the financial planning process where you're just deciding, Hey, let's see if this is the right choice rather than just saying, yes, go buy life insurance right now. 100%. Yeah. Well put Jerry. It, the, so I, and I believe this is true, and, and this is something that is absolutely highly testable, discussing the importance of guardianship through a will mm -hmm. is absolutely top priority in this case, right? This is a person that has two children, right? that are young, they're both minors, doesn't matter which state you're in, they're both minors, 12 and yep. seven. Yeah. Single parent, right. right, is engaged, doesn't say anything about the arrangements for the kids anywhere here. And the threat that we are addressing, if we were to act on setting up guardianship through a will, is this process that's called intestacy. And what intestacy is, it is, a situation where personal assets, or in this case, the the guardianship of, a, of minors is going to be dictated by the state. The state that you live in has these prescribed 
ways to handle situations that are similar to you. So I live in the state of Connecticut. <clears throat> when I've looked at this in the past, Connecticut has a whole bunch of little vignettes about this person has deceased. They had one surviving child. They have an uncle that lives locally. I mean, they get pretty specific, right? This person has a surviving spouse and three kids, all of whom are adults. And they have a way that, that the estate is to be uh, handled. And what you lose there by not having the guardianship is control of the most valuable asset here, which is the kids. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, the fund needs to be fully funded. If, if, there's, if you're saying I'm comfortable enough with the state making this decision about who's gonna care for my kids if I pass away, I mean, that, as a parent, that is something that I am incredibly uncomfortable with. Yeah. I mean, I think of, of some of the decisions our state makes. They've, my wife's a psychotherapist in practice. The state is making this ridiculous uh, rule for, for her business. Mm -hmm. um, and there are several, several different examples of this, of, about states doing things that might work for a handful of people, but aren't really going to work well for others. And you are, are placing the care and well-being of your kids in the hands of the state <laughs> to follow basically a check it off thing and then send your kids off to Uncle Joey's house. I mean, yeah, and, and, and that's how I really drive it home for students who get frustrated with these types of questions is I give them the evil step uncle uh, scenario. You know, <laughs> you know, picture that Shira here gets hit by a bus and she only has time to do one action and the four mm -hmm. actions just to rehash for our listeners is emergency funds, life insurance, 529s or guardianship. She can only do one action before she gets hit by that bus. What action would she, you know, want to choose? And spoiler alert for this question, the answer if uh, you haven't, uh, you know, figured it out by now is set up that guardianship <laughs> because she gets hit by that bus, these kids go to, you know, the evil step uncle and it doesn't matter how much money they have in the 529. It doesn't matter how much the emergency fund is. It doesn't matter how much life insurance they have. They could have millions and millions of dollars. And in fact, if you go to the evil step uncle scenario, the more money they have, the actual worse <laughs> off they are. Because if that quote unquote guardian does not have the children's best interests at hearts, those children are going to suffer. You know, yeah. it, do it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money you have if it is not put up in a properly managed, uh, you know, guardianship or trust or what have you to make sure that that money actually goes to the kids and doesn't line the evil step uncle's pockets. 150%. I, I will bring up, uh, I'll share just a little, a little personal situation to give even more depth to this, right? So in my home state, if me and my wife were to pass away, we have family members that live one of whom lives in, in town and, and others that live the next town over. Next town over are my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. Down the street, uh, my sister-in-law, her wife and their family, right? So sister-in-law, wife and family is, is where we would like our kids to go. They, mm -hmm. They're in town. They're younger. Uh, they have a little child of their own. Uh, they're, they're very involved in our lives. It's not to say that my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, um, they're very involved as well. 
but my mother-in-law recently had uh, had some some health stuff that's really taking up a lot of a lot of their time together is 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 dedicated to my mother-in-law's wellness. If the state of Connecticut were to make a choice if my wife and I passed away, my kids would go under the care of my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. And it's not that they wouldn't take great care of our kids or don't love our kids, but where they're at in life right now with what they're facing, that's that's not the right place for them. Mm-hmm. My kids are, you know, you, you'd want their their life to be, you know, as similar as it could be to what they were doing uh, prior to. I mean, it'd be devastating for them, but you'd want them to remain engaged in activities. That would be tough to get them back and forth the way that we do. You'd want them uh, to still be able to, to have access to friends in the neighborhood. And as I said, my sister-in-law is down the street. So so just a, a real life example of that, that, that even if you have people and say, ah, oh, the state will handle, I, I have people in my home state. It's not that easy and simple. And, and again, it's, it's the reason why rules of thumb are nice, but you have to look deeper. And, and yeah. I love your example there. Parents get hit by a bus. Are you comfortable with your kids going to the evil uncle? I mean, that, that really <laughs> makes it more immediate. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to process this for the exam, certainly, and in those real life situations. I think that's a great way to pose it to clients that don't have this in place. I mean, think this through. Yeah. If you do not have this in place, this is who your kid's custody is going to go to. Are you okay with you you don't want the courts deciding what happens to your kids. No, you don't. You want to have a say in that. And yeah, I think of it. I the you know the lemony snicket, you know, series of unfortunate events, <laughs> you know, style. You got three kids who have a massive inheritance, and they get shuffled off to their you know evil mad scientist step uncle. <laughs> so think about that when you see these types of questions. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Should we bring up another little twist on this? So I think yeah, we have we have if we were to take the same set of case facts, but we swap out the guardianship through a will, mm-hmm. and instead we put in uh, long-term disability coverage. Sure. Yeah. All right. Now let's think this one through. Long-term disability coverage—that is key. Right. Yes, this person doesn't have a whole lot in the way of emergency fund expenses. Yes, you would still be leaning toward that option. Get that into the emergency fund. She, this parent needs it. Um, but think bigger picture. Single parent. You're assuming it's a single source of income, right? Or even just this pool of money. We don't even know what their work situation is like. Yep. Even if the inheritance goes into an emergency fund, if there is a long-term disability, that has potential to absolutely chip away at the financial well-being of the household and put the family in a very different place if that single parent weren't able to work for an extended period of time. I would rank that up at the top too, and I would still get a whole bunch of people debating as well about (laughs) the fact that you go in the emergency fund um, it's a little less clear cut there, but you have to think longer term, bigger picture. I mean, you're not going to be aggressively investing that money that goes into the emergency fund, right? Yep. Um, it's going to be very conservative. It's going to be safe. 
what happens? That's the only dollar amount that we see in this question, save the $50,000 group term policy. What happens when all that's depleted? And we're not talking about death here. We're talking about disability. Um, I think that's an important layer of protection. Again, that needs to be discussed. Yeah. Right. Well, and stripping it down to an even more simple aspect is if we just limited it to just emergency fund and life insurance, um, you, everyone listening, when you see this on your exam, be very cognizant of children because children change your priorities greatly. You know, if Shira was just single, no dependents, nothing whatsoever, then yeah, get that emergency fund to make sure, you know, that she has uh, the money she needs if she hits a rough patch. But as soon as you add in minor children into the mix, life insurance and disability insurance get a huge step up in priority because Shira is no longer having herself as her primary concern. You know, and as soon as you become a parent, you know, yourself becomes secondary. Your yeah. kids become the primary. 100%. And so, and yeah, so as a parent, you can definitely relate to that, Adam. So yeah. because she has kids, her worst case scenario is not her losing her job and needing to make ends meet. Her worst case scenario now is what if I, you know, get hit by a bus? What happens to my kids? An emergency yeah. fund of six months is not going to hold your 12 and seven year old over until they each uh, reach age of majority. You know, yeah. you need that life insurance policy in place uh, to provide for them if something happens to you or that long term disability plan if she becomes uh, you know, disabled and is no longer able to provide for her kids herself. Hundred percent, yeah. I, and and here's here's the the really frustrating part about the CFP exam in certain places, right? Mm -hmm. It it over simplifies because you can't go into a thorough case study with every question. You do have a case study or two, and several mini cases, but in a standalone question, there's only so much detail you're going to get. And the answer that you would give if this were a real life situation might not be the answer you see there. You can only select from the answers that are provided and you have to select the best one. So as much as you know, you wanna be creative about this, well, why don't we just take a portion of that lump sum, build out their emergency fund a little bit to address that, right? So we get maybe to three months of expenses. Maybe we go to four months. Set the rest of the money aside. We could put a little bit away in the 529, that's fine. But maybe we set the rest of the pool aside and we purchase a term policy. This is a young person. Uh, premiums are gonna be lower. That's gonna give them an added le level of protection, right? And you could go down this scenario and say, well, that's not there. That's not there. That's what I would do. That's what we do in my practice. Yeah, I love that argument. It's yeah. like, well, the CFP board doesn't care what you do in your practice. <laughs> this is... It's not about that. It's not about creative planning. It's not about that that super, uh, you know, how do we how do we take this pool of money that we're aware of and and place it here or place it there? You are limited to four options, and you have to find the best one. Yep. And to do that, you have to identify the biggest vulnerability. What is the biggest threat here to this client? Um, and discussing the guardianship. That's an easy conversation to have uh, in terms of, of bringing that up in this context. Hey, we, we're aware you got this inheritance. Uh, given what we know about your situation, we know you prioritize education, but a, a far more important thing for us to take a look at 
is getting a will drafted, take a portion of that money, let's go to the estate planning attorneys, let's get this document that is gonna give you a layer of protection so you know where your kids are going. And that's gonna give you peace of mind too. Um, and from there, you can start working with that client to have a more robust plan. But uh, yeah, these are, uh, yeah, they're, they're tough, I, I admit. And the more we hear, the, the more often than not, you're gonna have questions that are similar in their field where it's not a super clear that you have the answer because there's a bunch of good answers. It's the way that the test is written and you just gotta find the best one. And that's why every single person that sits for this, mm -hmm. except the people that lie about it, <laughs> <laughs> when they click submit, I always hear, I thought it was a toss up. Yeah, It could have gone either way. No one, no one completes this exam and says, I aced that. Yeah. So, and I can totally understand with these questions, um, you know, why it frustrates the students so much, because, you know, like we said, there's the rules of thumb, you get the rules of thumb driven into your skull, mm -hmm. but the CFP board loves testing the exceptions to the rules of thumb. It's not that they're, you know, yes, you might see a couple of them, but in general, they're going to test those exceptions to the rule of thumb, and that is what frustrates students to no end because they they claim it's subjective because yeah. they they just like going on autopilot mode, and this is not a test you can do on autopilot. Absolutely, and here's here's a little bit of uh, of inside baseball. As a question writer, if I'm putting my question writer vest on, right? Yep. It is easier to write a question knowing that we're going to land on an exception. Yeah. I, I can use that as a starting point and then reverse design a question that's really good. That's going to be, I'll come up with options that are enticing enough so that it's going to throw the student off a little bit. It's going to be distracting enough and nagging them enough. And, and that's how a lot of questions are written. We're, we're beginning with the end in mind and the end is this exception to the rule. It's also really easy to see if you're reading a book and they have an exception, it's often insert, it's bold-faced, it's underlined. It's easy to see when you're getting source material too. Right. So I'd say just, you're not going to get it all the time, but be prepared for that. And take note of the exceptions to rules that are, are in your materials for CFP. We'll often say, learn the features and benefits for anything that can be tabled. So if you could put concepts on the table and look at their features and benefits, the next step is to highlight the outlier. What is the, what is the thing that makes this particular thing different and unique? Because that's probably the thing that's going to be tested. And I know we're getting a little more abstract here, but, <laughs> but this, is, this is really the, the way that this comes together and the way that it's done. And, and I mean, you have a wrong answer. Most people report being able to strike that out. Yep. And then yep. we get into the last three. There's often two good answers that could make it. And then there's a best answer. And the distance between your, your number two and the number one, it's usually not very far. Yep. You could usually make a very compelling case for the number two option. Yep. But there's something about it that you're not seeing often. That's the thing that makes the difference on those toss-ups. 
before we wrap up this episode, Adam, I think we would be remiss to not at least talk about when the rule of thumb actually is the rule of thumb. You know, when do you see this type of question and be like, yes, okay, emergency fund is the best course of action. Yeah, I I think if you change these facts around, mm-hmm. I think what what you know what it's not even changing the facts around, it's changing the options. I think you change the okay. options around here. And um I think by by scratching out that note about the will, you're down to to more of a, a toss-up situation between building that emergency fund out, definitely need life insurance, um, open and fund the 529. That's that's a, a that's one that's that's a contender because it's a client instruction, right? Right. So that's right. gonna so I could see if you subbed something that were that were like fund the revocable living trust. I I I wouldn't even go down that path in this question. Because um, because that's something you can do at a later date. Like it's not yeah. you know if if we're talking about the stepping out like you're signing one piece of paper before you step off that curb, you know, yep. and get hit by the bus. Is the pay- piece of paper you really want to sign to fund the revocable living trust? Well, no, <laughs> no. It's it is it is very good practice to fund the the revocable living trust for other things that we can get into in another episode. But um, if we're talking rules of thumb here, right? I think it comes down to uh, comes down to you know who are we talking about? Uh, are we we talking about a single earner in the household? Do you have dual earners in the household? Do you have dependents? Um, in practice, when I work with clients on this, I go a little bit deeper. I kind of have a formula to figure out what's the number of months that we need at a minimum. And it's it's a stepwise thing that goes, we, we start always with one month, right? So this yeah. client would have that in place. But then if you have dependents, you automatically add in a number, another three months of of. And- uh, of, of, of spending. I mean, yeah. kids are expensive. Right. <laughs> and, and that for me is that linchpin for me. Yeah. If, if I see kids in the scenario, emergency fund just drops way down on my priority list because as we've said before in this episode, there are just so many other things that become more important. So if, if I see a, a question like this and there aren't kids involved, like it's just an individual or a married couple who don't have kids yet or anything like that, or don't want kids. Well, then emergency fund becomes much more important. And, you know, I'll look for things like it'll say, it's like, Hey, they have two, you know, uh, a married couple and they both work for the same company and Mm -hmm. their uh, 401ks are mostly made up of company stock of the company that they work for. Bing, bing, bing. You know, that is a red flag in my head. These people need an emergency fund. Because if that company they work for is Lehman Brothers or Enron or, you know, some (laughs) other company that blows up overnight, they're going to be screwed because both of their income sources are dried up and both of their retirement plans take a massive hit if it's mostly in the company stock that they work in. That's just such an over-concentration in one area. Emergency fund jumps to the top of the list. Yeah, yeah. And and right after that is get that concentrated position diversified <laughs> yeah right after emergency fund okay let's <laughs> let's let's sell some of that company stock sell some of that company stock and and there you just step into you could step into a world of biases i mean i think i brought this up in an episode a while back but my mom worked for one of the bigger financial companies for her career and uh she had she had some company stock still 
And uh, she asked for just some of my thoughts on where she was pre-retirement. I said, you're looking good. The one thing I, I'm not comfortable with is just how heavily concentrated you are in the company stock. My, and just the emotional stuff that's that's involved. I mean, she spent her career there, essentially. Yeah. And she not only had that bias because that that's where she was doing good work for people and had met these great friends, right? There's more to it uh, than just that company. She wants the company to be a winner that she right. worked for. But she also started anchoring and she'd say, well, I really think it's going to go up to 150 a share. And when it gets there, then I'm going to sell. And it would get to 150 and she'd move it. <laughs> well, it's on a roll now. I mean, why don't I move it up to, up to here? So, uh, yeah, that's a whole other matter. But, uh, you know, emergency fund goes up to the top and you're looking, you know, the rule of thumb, three to six months. So if you have a couple both earning three months as a side, you, you air toward. If you have one earner in the household, you go more towards six. And the rationale there is uh, if if one person loses their job in a dual earning family, you still have income coming in. If the breadwinner loses their job, it could take a while for them to find another job that's going to pay them as well so that they're able to support a family or to support, uh, you know, a, a partnership or a marriage. So that's the, that's the basic rule of thumb, but it changes so much. I mean, truly the, the little grid that I use to figure out the minimum emergency fund for the people I work with, it's not that cut and dry. It's not like something you'd read on one of the financial articles on the internet where it's like, Right. Three or six months. That's it. It's as simple as that. I mean, I've heard of, of planners that actually will go to nine months. I mean, if, if there's there's enough there and, in, you know, and the situation calls for it, they'll they'll push that out even farther. Um, so it really does depend like a lot of the a lot of the stuff in in this area, which getting back to the exam, it makes it so much more important that you're reading about the person. Right. It's a, a pairing of the person to the concept in application, right? You have to find the right fit between the two. And the person's going to drive that. And uh, one of the things, just in, in closing on this, that I would remind myself after every single question on my exam was think like a planner, think like a CFP professional. And it reminded me to always step back, take a look at who am I working with? What do they have? What's the question here? And big picture, you know, do they do they have something that could potentially send them off course in a big way? You know, and that's I think those those high level SWOT analysis, it, it's really locked in for a lot of people that are in the industry. You can usually look at something pretty quickly and spot those vulnerabilities. Um, and if you're not feeling confident on that, just just start looking at some case facts. Uh, that that are out there. Start honestly. Start thinking of people in your world, right? So and so was telling me about these these issues that they're having with such and such a thing, right? Well, how would you handle that? How would what what's the solution? If that were your client, how would you approach them about that? Um, these are all all very good things to just get you in that CFP mind uh, as you head towards your exam, and and obviously as a practicing CFP, this is this is also highest priority. But fortunately, once you're on the other side of this, uh, you have you have more flexibility because we're not going to only have four options on the table for Shira. 
we're going to be able to talk to Shira. We're going to be <laughs> yeah. able to get some feedback. We're going to discuss her goals, what she values, um, timelines, where she sees herself, where she wants her kids to be, the quality of life. You're going to fill in a lot of the detail that's vital here. So it's not just, all right, Shira, single parent right now, six months, boom. It's not that simple. Right. <laughs> it's never that simple. I wish it was. Uh, it's not, but that's the reason why we're able to help people is, is being able to interpret these situations with people and uh, to help them get towards the right solution for them. Definitely. So in closing, just some kind of bullet point highlights for you guys to keep in mind when you uh, sit for the exam and you get a question like this. Number one, look for those exceptions uh, that are going to trigger the priorities to shift, you know, namely children or extenuating circumstances. Um, look at the wording, you know, like we said, recommend versus evaluate. Those are two very different actions that is going to change their priorities. Um, then also, uh, as far as, you know, how to address these uh, types of Questions is think of the worst case scenario, you know, think of uh, the the evil step uncle, <laughs> you know, prepare for the worst, <laughs> but hope for the best. Well, if the worst case scenario is your kids go and become wards of the state, you, know, you got to prepare for that. Yeah, absolutely, Jerry. Yeah, this is a good one. And I think those of you who are planning on on getting ready to sit for your CFP exam, this this is a just such a great example of of how how sneaky some of the questions can be because we've we've talked for over a half hour about on this Jerry and it's one question yep <laughs> which is which is something that's very representative of what you'll see on your exam it's this scenario and there's there's options that all seem appealing and uh, th there's there is an underlying thread here now I I think a while ago we recorded an episode uh, it was. Was it Brendan and you with John Loper from CFP board? Yep. I think Mike was on that episode as well. Mike was on that too? Okay. Yep. With John um, Loper, yes. I also recommend checking that out. I don't know the, the minute mark, but he talks through this idea of subjectivity and he just puts it a lot more eloquently than, than I can. But he gives an example of, of a question that was a retired question where the, the devil was in the detail. They right. all seem like really feasible things. And, and people will jump at that question and say, well, that's subjective. And he breaks it down and says, this is the reason why this is the right question. This is the best option. It's because in this one, here's the little wrinkle that causes it to not be the best. Yeah. In this one, we strike that out altogether because that's just not something we'll consider. This one, we have to think that through, right? Uh, but he does such a really great job of, of breaking down uh, the reasoning process as you go through your answers. So check that episode out too. Really worth a listen. Definitely. Because yeah, on the surface, this seems like a really subjective question. But as we just you know talked exhaustively about, <laughs> it's not. The devil is no. in the details. There, There is a right answer and it is not as subjective as it sees at first glance. 
Yeah, without a doubt. Awesome. Well, great, great time talking with you, Adam. Uh, always look forward to it. Uh, best of luck to our students who are just really gearing up for uh, for the new cycle. We're, we're having classes start up. Our first class is on May 8th. So if you're sitting for the July exam and you still don't know where you're going to take your review at, hope you come to us. There is still time to enroll in the BIF review, and we look forward to seeing you all next week. Absolutely, Jerry. Thanks again for, for this time and what a great topic you picked out here for a discussion. So uh, just a reminder to the, the crew out there listening, if you like this one, we have a lot more that we can we can walk through. Just let us know. We'll make sure we get this in our rotation as we continue to release these new episodes. Take it easy, everyone, and study on. Take care. Bye. Thank you.